Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I begin this series on 1 John, I am very conscious that I speak in a context which in some ways is similar to the one in which John writes. Let me try and explain that to you, why it is similar. At the time of John's writing, there was some disturbance in the church from some false teaching. And it seems that scholars are fairly clear where these different elements of false teaching were emerging from and have even given them names. Uh, One group was called the Gnostics, and there was a a subset of that group, though most of the Gnostics had this tendency, uh, a subset of that group called Docetists. Gnostics and Docetists, two big words, right? Yeah, thank you. The Gnostics pretended that they had a secret knowledge, that they had the inside track on what Jesus was really about and what spirituality was really uh, about. Gnosis means knowledge. And John, therefore, in his letter, over and over again, he writes one of his characteristic phrases that we'll find as we go through it is, we know. He says that over and again. Look, uh, brothers and sisters, actually that, that knowledge you've heard about, no, we have it. We have the Gnosis. It's not a secret knowledge. It's not a mystical, elite kind of inside track, but actually it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, we know, he says. And then in particular, the docetists, which it is most likely were, especially in the background to this letter, as John writes towards the end of his letter, he, he talks in particular about Jesus Christ who was in the flesh. The docetists, uh, dokeo, uh, Greek means I seem, and the docetists were people who said that the idea that Jesus Uh, was God, well, but he only seemed to have human flesh. This, of course, comes from various Greek myths that are in the backdrop to this, where there are ideas of gods who came down and sort of pretended to be humans. And what they're saying is, well, Jesus' incarnation was something like that. He only seemed to be human. And so John emphasizes that, no, Jesus was truly God and truly human as well. Now, I said at the beginning that our context is somewhat similar, and of course those, those words, Gnostics and Docetists, are very ancient, and we don't have anything quite like that around today, um, but it is similar in various ways. So, for instance, today people don't claim so much that Jesus only seemed to be human, they claim that he only seemed to be God. In a sense, it's the direct opposite. 
And uh, in terms of Gnosis, uh, Gnostics, uh, people today do not so much claim a, a sort of secret inside track uh, in, in that way, but today there are many claims to knowledge. Uh, science, of course, is a claim to knowledge with the empirical method that has produced many great benefits to our society. But there is a form of naturalistic scientism that claims that it only has knowledge, a scientism, if you like, and that claims that any kind of supernatural reality is ruled out of court by the test tube. No sticks of a different kind, perhaps. It seems to me that either way, the answer is found in First John, whether about spirituality of a different kind or any sort of knowledge of a different kind. But in theological terms, theological terms, excuse me, he is saying that the Jesus of history, the real Jesus, the one that historians try and reach towards as they analyze the various texts, the Jesus of history is the same Jesus as the Bible. In fact, this is how you find out about the Jesus of history. That's a big claim, uh, and one which he introduced for us in our passage this morning about biblical revelation in two ways, content and consequences. Those are the two points under the theme of biblical revelation, content and consequences. First, content. This is the first half of the passage down to the beginning of verse 3, and uh, John explains two elements of the content of this biblical revelation that's really in the Bible. And you can really find out about Jesus through this. (laughs) Two ways, he says. One, it is centered on a real historical event. Now, when we were talking about this this, uh, just the other week with some of the pastors as we're beginning this series, we were saying to ourselves, we could not emphasize more strongly this point. Christianity is not just a series of ideas. Christianity is not just a moral code. Christianity is a claim about an historical event. And so John says this is someone that he saw, he heard, he looked at and touched. <laughs> he touched. It's an event. Not just a series of moral ideas, it's an event, something that happened. As surely as Abraham Lincoln lived and Thomas Jefferson, so did Jesus. And if you'd been around at the same time, you could have seen God. Perhaps you've heard one of the most famous arguments for the truth of Christianity, one I've used myself many times. It comes from C.S. Lewis. The argument is that Jesus, you have to decide there's a trilemma. There's a, not a dilemma, a trilemma. There are three options, mad, bad, or God, you see. And so because of what Jesus said about himself, he claimed to be God. You cannot just say that he's a good teacher or a good man. You have to say he's either insane, evil, or he is who he said he was. It's an excellent argument. I've used it many times. But the difficulty these days is because of historical criticism of the Bible from 19th century uh, German roots and the Enlightenment that are now being popularized through the various media arms that... Uh, popularize some of these ideas. Because of that, it's been more widely known. And so when you talk to someone about that trilemma, you know, Jesus, mad, bad, or God, the alternative that is often in their heads is, well, what, what about another alternative? Maybe he's just fiction. 
Maybe your idea about what Jesus said and what he did is just made up by various people at the time, and you, we, we really have very little idea of the Jesus of history. And this is why John is writing like this. The first three and a half verses, John says, I count ten times that he saw or touched or heard this person called Jesus. And we actually have some extra biblical information that helps us give a sense of how real this is. It's most likely that John was writing this letter from Ephesus, that city. That's the view of Irenaeus, who was mentored by Polycarp, who was mentored by John the Apostle himself. Grandfather generation. And so John's claim is he saw and touched the word of life, the eternal, that which came from the Father. And he's saying any kind of spiritual desire you have this morning to touch the heavens, that which was from the beginning, I touched, he says. I tried this morning to give a couple of illustrations for this. Let me try again and see if they, uh, they hit home. I read in the newspaper about a World War II veteran who died recently. He had a heart attack. He died at the age of 94. And it was discovered when they cremated him, his family were handed a bag of pieces of shrapnel, six-ounce bag. He said to them that he had a bullet in his knee. They didn't realize it was two big handfuls of bolts, nails, and metal. Sort of makes real, doesn't it, the... The story of this man who'd, who'd been blown up, as it were, and had to crawl two miles through on enemy-occupied territory to safety. It makes it real, doesn't it, when you're handed a, 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 couple of ba- a bag, a couple of handfuls of metal and bolts and nails. <laughs> you touch it. One of the great heroes of this church from a previous generation, Evan Welsh, uh, just beneath this uh, room, there's a hall that's named after his honor, a great man. I've talked to many people who knew him personally. I never knew him personally. Perhaps you never met him. Perhaps you did. But maybe after church, you go up to someone and say, look, I've noticed there's a hall in the basement called Welsh Hall. Why is that? Is it because you like Welsh people, you know? And they say, well, no, there was this man, this, this godly man called Evan Welsh. And you say to him, well, did he really exist? So, right, yeah, you know, I shook his hand. I mean, I knew him. That's what John is saying. He, he, he's saying it is irrational for these early Christians to doubt the witness of, that he brings to that which was from beginning, the word of life, as it would be to doubt that man talking about Evan Welsh or the witness of the handful of nails to the shrapnel bomb of World War II. Now, of course, this is an ancient text you're saying in your head, and that is true. But when you analyze the textual witness and the historical train, we have so much more textual witness to this than many other texts like Julius Caesar's invasion of Britain, for instance, which you may say should happen again sometime soon, maybe. John has no agenda. You say, maybe he's just writing this because he wants to get money out of these people. No, he's an old man when he writes, Irenaeus tells us. He has no agenda. He has nothing to gain by writing this way. He's simply telling them what he touched. And you say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it's true, and truth always has consequences. And so we need to draw out the consequences for us, and they're very profound and important. And the other element I just want to mention before we do that of the content of the Revelation is that 
John now preaches. And so this rather roundabout way in which he phrases these first few verses, he begins with the object that which was from the beginning, which is as unusual in Greek as it is in English, and he has a parenthesis in verse 2, which in the ESV, it comes between two sort of dashes, two hyphens. It's all to emphasize that which was from the beginning, he saw and heard and touched, this he's proclaiming. So the content of Revelation is the events which we're underlining, the proclamation which we're experiencing as we study this. <laughs> so the content of Revelation, historical event, verifiable credibility, not just a sequence of moral ideas, a message about a person. That if you've been around at the same time, you could have seen, just like Abraham Lincoln, just like Evan Welsh, that if you've been around at the same time, you could have seen God in human flesh. What about those consequences, you say? Well, let's move to that then, my friends. And this is from the second half of verse uh, 3 to the end of our section. You'll notice that he gives two immediate implications from the consequences there. And both those things are the greatest things that people look for in our society and any other society. He says, so that, or in order that, about two things, fellowship and joy. So that you may have fellowship and so that we may have joy. Well, let's begin with fellowship, shall we? The fellowship that is the consequence here is far beyond any mere tolerance. The title for this series is Beyond Tolerance. It's because one of the great themes of John's letter is love and truth. And our society champions tolerance, and for many good reasons. Tolerance itself was built upon the work of John Locke, the great philosopher, and Roger Williams, the New England pastor, as a Protestant attempt to create a society without wars about religion. It has had wonderful fruit in many ways. A Protestant attempt to create a society without wars about religion, built upon biblical convictions. And when people criticize publicly Christian truth, What they're doing is they're doing it because they have the freedom that a biblical revelation contextualized in a particular historical society has given them. You try to make the same criticisms of religion about Islam in a Muslim country. You just can't do that. And so it has wonderful fruits, but by some strange paradox, some strange illegitimate generation, this tolerance has become relativistic tolerance, the child of postmodernism. And relativistic tolerance, when someone says, I'm tolerant of everything apart from someone who is not tolerant of everything, that sounds good. But what's really being said is they're tolerant of everything apart from other people who are not tolerant of everything. In other words, it's another form of intolerance. What's really being said is, if you do not agree with my ideology, I will not tolerate you. Whereas what the Bible teaches is you love your neighbor, whatever they believe. It's beyond tolerance. It's a higher calling. If you wonder, as a Christian, why we see in the news all these strange phenomena of normal kind, nice people being reprimanded at work for, uh, here are just a few examples I've come across recently, for wearing a cross or putting Bible verses in their store window, 
calling the Church of Scientology a cult, free speech. What's going on is it's all in the name of relativistic tolerance. You are not speaking the language of relativistic tolerance, and because I'm tolerant of everything apart from those who are not tolerant of everything, therefore I'm not tolerant of you. Whereas John says, truth and love. Whatever you believe, whatever you believe, my calling because of God whose love is to love you. You see, biblical revelation, on the other hand, has a, can create a society where there's a free market of ideas. A free market of ideas. Why is that? Well, we have the truth. <laughs> We're secure about that. We, we don't need to exclude other people from public uh, discourse. We know. We know. You see, every time you see an attempt to silence another view from public discourse in a sort of reasonable and restrained sense, you see a viewpoint that is actually somewhere deep down deeply insecure of the truth of what they claim. There's no need to be like that as Christians, we know. We want a free market of ideas, for the truth will come out, the truth of Jesus. Biblical revelation has a track record of creating societies where there is more tolerance than you will find in any other societies on the face of the planet because it is beyond tolerance. The fellowship here is having in common. That is a consequence of biblical revelation because those who receive Jesus have fellowship with the Father and therefore all those who receive Him have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship that holds in common something far more important than culture or class or personality or ideology, the secondary kind. And the way to increase fellowship is not to stare at each other with our different views on various matters to stare at Him in whom we are one. And so he says later in his letter, chapter 4, Dear friends, since God so loved us, and when he says since, he's talking about the cross. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Fellowship. Well, the other consequence is even more wonderful if it were possible, and that is verse 4. We write these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this verse in context has four components that will make our joy complete. Let me outline them for you. I want you to have complete joy. That's why John writes. That's why I preach this morning. One, he says, we write so I want you to realize what's going on in John's mind here, I think. His ministry, your ministry, Christian service, has a byproduct of joy. We write for this purpose. So you say, why serve? Joy. You say, why give? Joy. You say, why do these Christians care for the homeless and the victims of sex trafficking? Joy. Now, joy is not the gospel, it's not the final end goal. God is the final end goal, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore loving each other. That's the goal. But joy is, let me put it like this, an announced, he announces it here, an announced, intended, he writes this is why he's doing it, an announced, intended byproduct. 
We write this to make our joy complete. You serve Jesus to make our joy complete. You give to make our joy complete. So that's one. Two, we write so that joy is the result of a commitment to the content to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the God-man. So that. What that means is this. No roller coaster. See those pictures recently of the man leaping from the edge of outer space? That's a thrill. No leap from the edge of outer space. No high office, no celebrity acclaim can compare to knowing Jesus. There's always one more jump, one more book to write, one more deal to make, one more person to greet. The end of all joys is Jesus. Three, we write this so that our, our, joy may be complete. And it's an unusual phrase here. There's some textual variation, probably because it is an unusual phrase, and probably the version that you have in front of you is the most likely to be accurate because it seems unusual, and by rule of textual criticism, therefore, it is most likely to be the right one. It is our text, which could be your, as I say, most likely to be our, because it comes out of fellowship with God and each other, not just there, but his as well, our So joy in Jesus is not solitary or just something that is communicated to someone else. It's a community project, something you do together. You come to church for joy. (laughs) So it means something like this, the millionaire in his mansion. You see him there with all his BMWs and 15 bedrooms all in different colors for different days of the week twice over with gold faucets, you know, taps. The millionaire in his mansion without Jesus and without church has no joy in comparison to the pauper. Can you see him there? He, he, he's living paycheck to paycheck, not because he's doing a bad job with his financial responsibility, but because that's where he is. Maybe he's had an accident at work or something like that. He is poor. He is struggling. No joy in comparison to the pauper in his Bible study with Jesus and with the church. Hedonistic, individualistic attempts at joy were found on the rocks of selfishness. There is no joy in yourself Joy comes from being a mere satellite orbit, orbiting, circling around the glories of Christ and His church. That's how you get joy, not by being trying to be the center, but by moving out of the center to be a satellite focusing on Christ and His church. If you want joy this morning, that's how you go about it. Four. He says, we write this so that our joy, and this is the phrase that I spent most time thinking about this week, how can John say this? 
we write this so that our joy may be complete. Let us think what that filled, complete, not almost there or half there or quite good, but complete. As I wrestle with it, here's the best I could do. Seems to go like this to me at this point. In Jesus, we have already everything we need. And that must include fullness of joy. That's, that's objectively true. We have that. He has done everything we need. We're in Christ. We're already, in that sense, in heaven. We're in the heavenlies. We're, our position is in Christ. Our place is in heaven. We have everything we need in Jesus. But in this world, our temperament, our circumstances, our own sin, our sufferings, our doubts, all that puts pressure on our experience of the heavenly joy in Jesus, of that complete joy. So John here is writing to give us a remedy, seeking first the kingdom of God. He writes, he proclaims, he preaches, he serves for them and him that together they will complete the complete joy they have in Christ. The bank of joy is filled by heaven's God-man Son, Jesus. It's filled. It's complete. And here we are in this world, and we pay out our, our debts, our dividends throughout our life. We draw then out fresh reserves to complete our joy. So he says again in the second letter of John, verse 12, he uses exactly the same phrase in the second part of that, verse 12. He says, I hope to see you face to face so that our joy may be complete, what he writes again for the same purpose. That the completeness of joy in Christ is emphasized and renewed through then his fellowship with them. He sees them face to face so that our joy may be complete. And actually I think, and uh, I did some study on that this week, that actually here, of course, the Greek for joy is is kara, and it's etymologically related to the Greek word for grace, charis. And that is used in at least one place to translate Hebrew, shalom, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And like shalom, joy then, kara, has both objective and subjective elements. In other words, it's saying both, I am in Christ, I have all the joy I need whether I feel it or not. It's just objectively true fact. But also subjective elements in the word itself and in context that seems for sure what John is saying in 1 John and then 2 John that he is writing so that in their and his experience the objective complete joy they have already (laughs) may be subjectively furthered and completed even in the midst of the context with this false teaching that's going on around And so he's talking about Jesus, fully God and fully man, not only seeming to be. I say, how, how do I know that for sure? Because the content of biblical revelation is a credible historical event, not just a series of ideas. And compelling biblical proclamation from the Word. The Word lives, the Word of life. Jesus himself, by his Spirit, as it is proclaimed, as it is written, lives. That's how you know. Event and proclamation, the content 
the biblical revelation, and then the consequences. <laughs> wow! Consequences of such compelling content, a credible event and proclamation, fellowship beyond mere tolerance, love for your neighbor, whatever they believe. Creating a society where such tolerance is possible as has happened and is needs to keep on happening. Fellowship. Love in the church beyond personality and preference. And then joy. Not just a mere momentary fleeting experience, however good it is. Oh, that was good. I love that. I love that moment. I love that song. I love that talk. I love that relationship. Now it's gone. No, here you have complete joy in Jesus objectively. And now because of the content of Revelation, if you join that with your faith, if you believe that, if you repent of your sins and trust that, there is on offer to make our joy complete, the renewal of that joy through the content of biblical revelation, the fellowship to complete in our experience the already completed joy that is an offer through the gospel. The word of life. John's word counters the, all the individualistic scientism of our day with the content all the spiritual search for meaning experience of our day with the consequences of biblical revelation. Let's pray together. Perhaps you're someone here this morning who really loves the idea of being spiritual. But you have found, quote unquote, institutional religion a turn off. Would you find in John's letter both the content and then the consequences? It's a historical event of verifiable, credible witness with consequences that are what you are really looking for. Uh, Perhaps you're someone here who loves Jesus with all your heart, and yet you're on a deep valley. Would you draw from heaven's bank the complete joy that's on offer? Perhaps there's someone even in this congregation that you find it very difficult to love. Would you so focus on the fellowship that you have with the Father and therefore with each other that the differences that you have with that person seem as small as a molehill in comparison to a mountain of fellowship? Father, I pray that you would uh, renew our fellowship and our joy this morning by the content of the word of life, biblical revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.